0: This is the Drummer's Resource podcast, session 318, and you're listening to the Daniel Glass show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you got to add some with a little tricks. Ah. Uh, uh, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's the Daniel Glass show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, how you doing? I want to welcome you to episode seven, and we are going to be talking in this episode about one of my favorite subjects, jazz. But the reason I am titling this episode the way that I am is because jazz is not everyone's favorite subject. Uh, In fact, a lot of people hate jazz. A lot of musicians hate jazz. A lot of listeners hate jazz. Uh, A lot of Uh, A lot of people hate jazz, and it's somewhat unfair, Uh, and I think uh, jazz is mysterious for a lot of people, jazz is uh, confusing for a lot of people, and jazz is downright off-putting for a lot of people, because they simply don't understand what is going on, and how can you necessarily like something if you don't understand what it's about? So, my goal today is, uh, first of all, I, I should say that I have an upcoming... Jazz intensive that I'm putting on here in New York. And I've been talking with a lot of people about it, Facebooking a lot about it, getting a lot of feedback about it. And um, it kind of, part of the reason why I am putting this on is to help clarify what jazz is about. And I think even for most musicians. Obviously, this event will be for drummers, but this podcast is not only for musicians of all kinds, but also for music listeners and people who love music, because I think there is so much confusion about jazz, what jazz is, what a jazz musician is supposed to do, how we're supposed to listen to, how we're supposed to access the music, how we're supposed to enjoy it. So what I'm going to do in this podcast, I'm going to break down the subject of jazz into simple, clear terms. I'm going to offer you a big-picture understanding, and I'm going to endeavor to welcome you into the world of jazz and offer you a way to start accessing jazz so that the experience is engaging, inspiring, and fun. In other words, jazz doesn't have to be hard. So the title, again, I've come up with is Keep Calm and Learn to Love Jazz. It's Easier Than You Think. I had a bunch of other hilarious titles, or not so hilarious, but uh, I, I really struggled to find the right title for this thing. So I, I had uh, the secret to making jazz easy. I'm not scared of jazz, and you don't have to be either. Uh, or this is my favorite, Doctor Swing Love, or how I stopped, how I learned to stop worrying and love jazz. In the end. I went with the classic phrase that's uh, you see on t-shirts everywhere, keep calm and learn to love jazz, it's easier than you think. And before we go any further, I just do want to mention, I do want to promote the upcoming Jazz Intensive. It's going to be four incredible days and nights in New York City. Uh, the date is June 3rd through 6th, 2016, so it's coming up uh, in, a little, uh, in about a month from the time of this podcast posting. We have um, a promotional code, uh, if you put in "dg jazz" one word "dg jazz," um, when you're registering, you get hundred dollars off. We are actually, as of this moment, giving away two free scholarship spots through a an online video contest, and um, and uh, it's it's everybody who comes is going to get all kinds of great free swag and giveaways from uh, various uh, drum companies that I endorse and uh, our various sponsors. There will also be we 're going to give away some high ticket items as well uh, so it's um, you 're going to get a free metro card too. the meals are going to be provided we 're going to uh, not only be at the drummers collective, one of the premier music schools in the nation uh, you 're going to have access to the practice rooms there. all the gear will be provided um, we 're giving away metro cards so that you can use the subways and buses for free while you 're here so if you can just get yourself here, internal transport within the five boroughs of New York is included uh, and um, We'll be going out to see some gigs at a couple of uh, the jazz clubs in New York City. One of my gigs at Birdland, another one at a place called Fat Cat, which is a really cool place. That'd be like a more of a, a t- traditional nineteen twenties type of gig, um, and uh, there'll be a jam session night and at a restaurant, and then. Uh, other uh, night where people can freely uh, cruise around the city and go see whatever they want. So it's the chance to come and immerse yourself in New York and have a very unique kind of experience looking at jazz through the lens that I look at it through. And I want to segue from this into the topic of this podcast. And I hope if you're a non-drummer and you're a lover of music that you've hung out this long because this podcast is for everyone, not just drummers. And it's about learning to love jazz and learning to understand jazz and getting excited about jazz. So I think the first thing we have to look at is understanding jazz and how if we're just listening to a jazz tune, how do we understand what is going on? Because a lot of people just hear random notes. They just hear, and the drummer's going, and the bass player's going, you know, and there is there is no um, song for them to hear. There's no recognizable melody. There's no, you know, the solos just seem random. Um, if you listen to a rock song, it makes a lot more sense. It's a fairly Clear cut format. When a solo comes, you could still kind of hear the song underneath it. Um, the lyrics go right to the heart of the matter. A lot of jazz. There are no lyrics, it's instrumental. So, you know understanding jazz, so I'm going to first give you my world famous hot dog analogy okay now've if you've seen uh, some of my clinics or you've taken lessons with me, uh, I get into this conversation pretty early on in the game uh, if we're talking about jazz, although not everybody studies jazz with me, but a lot of people do they want to learn how to swing they want to learn how to play jazz. so let's just talk about understanding jazz now the hot dog analogy goes as follows. Jazz is like a conversation, okay? So if you are a musician, you understand that when you get together with a group of friends to play, you may not be speaking to each other, but you are having a conversation, a musical conversation. You are communicating, right? So that conversation um, is organized generally around a topic. Uh, if you're, So let's just say our topic is hot dogs. So say you're hanging out with a bunch of people you like to hang out with, and generally when you do that it's because there's a good rapport so when someone's talking people are listening but they're not just sitting there with blank looks on their faces they're actively responding they're saying "uh-huh" "oh yeah" "well what about this" so we'll get into what that's about in a second but when you're having a conversation with a few friends maybe you have a conversation about many topics but generally you you settle on a topic and everybody says their piece that's what a conversation is so let's just say we have a jazz song which is called the hot dog song okay and you know, at the beginning of the song, everyone states musically what the hot dog song is. We love hot dogs, yes we do. We're gonna groove some hot dogs for you, or whatever it may be. Sorry for my bad improvisational skills there on the melody. But everyone plays that melody, okay? So the melody of a song that you hear at the beginning and the end of a jazz song, which is called the head, the melody states what the song is about, okay? And as you move farther into the song, everything actually is going to be based on that melody, okay? So so the hot dog song. So we've, we've set it up. Everyone has sort of stated the melody of the hot dog song together, which essentially, we love hot dogs. Yes, we do, okay? Now the first soloist comes up, okay? Now the soloist doesn't just play random stuff. The soloist plays a solo based on the melody. Now, if you are a musician, uh, the the song, you know, think think of the song and the melody. Melody is based on chord changes. So as the melody changes, there are chords underneath it within a certain scale, within a certain key, and those chords, um, you know, go by. Well, when the first soloist is soloing, now you're not going to hear the melody any longer, but you're still going to hear the chords. You should still be able to sing the melody over the top of the song. So I have a great little story that kind of Reinforces this. When I was uh, on the road with Royal Crown Review um, in the early part of our career, the first like six or seven years, we were full time. We were gone 300 days a year doing hundreds of shows, traveling all over the world. And that was my full time gig. I was not in LA very much where I lived. After 9 11, after around the year 2000, things calmed down for the band. Um, The swing resurgence had kind of peaked. And I was back in LA and I was looking for other things to do. So I got into a trio uh, with a really excellent vibraphonist named Eldad Tarmu, who's out here actually in the New York area, still playing his vibes, and we had a little group together and we used to play every week at this little restaurant, like you do when you have a jazz trio. And... um, and I was struggling, you know, he was throwing a lot of material at me and I didn't really know what to play or how to play it. It was t- It was rough for me. And he said, look, let's make this simple. We're a trio. Imagine that there is a fourth member of our band. Let's say he's a guitar player and he's sitting right next to you, this imaginary fourth member, and he is playing the melody and he plays the melody over and over and over and over again. Okay. So, um, if the melody of the song is happy birthday to you, you know, he's going to play that melody over and over again. With each time you go through the form of the song, what we call the form of the song, and each time you go through the form it's called taking a chorus. So if a soloist takes three choruses, then essentially what's going on is that they're playing three times through the melody of Happy Birthday or the melody of the hot dog song, okay? Now let's go back to the hot dog song. And and so what I'm saying is you as a listener, when you listen to that soloist, if you know the melody of the hot dog song, you can sing it right over what the soloist is doing and you'll be able to follow right along. And eventually, the more that you learn melodies just like in rock and roll, you know, you buy a new album, put it on the new album, first time you hear it, you don't know the songs. After you listen to it a few times, if you like the sound of it, now you start to get the songs in your head, you start to learn the songs. So if you bought, say, an album of Thelonious Monk tunes, and I picked Thelonious Monk because he has great, easy-to-remember melodies that really stick with you. They're a little weird and offbeat, but they're they're actually very memorable. after you learn those Thelonious Monk melodies, say, you can sing along with what's happening. And now when soloist steps up, it's not as if they're playing something random. It's as if they are simply playing the, the melody of the song. Now let's go back to our hot dog analogy. So say you guys have all, we've all sung the hot dog theme together. And now your friend, the one who talks more than anybody else, steps up and goes, man, you know, I love this place down on 34th Street. They make the best hot dogs, right? And they, you know, they make them Chicago style with the onions and the peppers and the tomatoes, and they got this hot mustard that's really kick-ass, and the buns are always warm. Now, when you have a conversation and one person is giving their opinion about the subject, you don't just sit there blankly, right? You respond, okay? Okay. Everyone in the group responds in their own way. Some people are quiet. Maybe they just nod their head. Some people are louder. They try to interrupt. Some people just go, "Mm, hmm, uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I get it. Oh, that's cool, right? So what we call the people who are responding to the soloist, we call what they are doing, we call that comping. Comping, which is short for accompaniment. Accompaniment, okay? Now, when you are comping, you do not just play random stuff, okay you don't just play whatever comes to your mind you are still playing along with that imaginary member of the band who is playing the melody over and over and over again so you converse with that melody your ideas are based around that melody okay now the soloist they're doing the same thing so just as in the conversation the first person to talk speaks about hot dogs Well, this person, the first soloist to to solo, speaks about... Uh, speaks about the melody. And so they are riffing off of the melody. And that is why when you listen to a jazz song, you should just be able to hear that melody in the solo they're playing. You should be able to hear the melody go by in the chords that are happening. You should be able to sing the melody along yourself once you familiarize yourself with the melody. So in jazz, everything is based around the melody of the tune, the head. Now, I should say that there are some kinds of jazz, like, you know, more avant-garde jazz, uh, where... You know that that is not followed, but in most cases, most sort of traditional straight-ahead jazz, big band jazz, 1920s jazz, it, it may all sound a little different, but it is designed around the same idea that uh, we all pick a melody, we all play that melody together, and then everybody gets to have a conversation about it. Now, what's beautiful about what's going on in a jazz band is that the musicians have a lot of freedom in order to fulfill this task. Okay, So in a rock song, for example, the drummer is generally very focused on a groove, a pattern, and they stick to that pattern. Maybe there's a verse pattern, then they change the pattern in the chorus, same thing with the bass player, and it's very focused and it's very repetitive. And you have a very kind of strict way that you do the song, and there might be a section for a solo where one person solos, uh, but there is not as much interaction, and there is not as much improvisational freedom. And this is how jazz developed, which is that, you know, musicians said, hey, I want to be able to, yes, we have the structure of a song, but I want to be able to freely express myself over that, and each time we play the song, I want to be able to do it in a different way, as long as I'm following these basic ground rules of everything is based off the melody. Okay, so that's another thing about jazz that's fantastic is that it gives the musicians freedom. Now, with freedom, like everything else, with every other kind of freedom, comes responsibility. So, you know, let's talk about number of choruses. A lot of times you may listen to jazz and you just go, God, that guy just keeps going on and on forever. And I don't I'm not moved by what he's doing. I don't feel that he is saying anything to me. This is similar in our hot dog conversation to a friend that say just talks and says nothing. We all have friends like that, you know, where they just start blathering on about something and, and you just want to shut it down. On the other hand, we have other friends where you love for them to talk because they always have something interesting to say. They always have an unusual perspective about whatever the conversation is, and that's why you're drawn to them. That's what, why you like to hang out with them, because they have something cool to say about what you're talking about. So a good musician is that kind of friend. And if you listen, they build What they're saying. So, again, another analogy a Shakespearean soliloquy, right? Or in a movie, a long passage where somebody has a monologue, you know, and that person pulls you in. And they may be talking for two, three, four, five minutes as part of this monologue, but The more that you listen to what they say, the more you're drawn in, the less conscious you are of the world around you, and you disappear into what they are saying. That is what a good jazz musician, a good jazz soloist, should do, not only for the rest of the band, but for the listener as well. So if you know the melody of the song, you can see, you can start to learn how the soloist will build their melodic ideas. And they may take two or three choruses through the form, and uh, by the end, you are incredibly moved, right? Now, let's let's go back to the relationship of the soloist and the person who is doing the comping, the accompanist. Um, so a lot of times, drummers in particular get frustrated because they feel that generally they're the accompanist, right? Drummers don't get to take solos as much as, say, a sax player, a piano player, or a guitar player. And so they may feel like they're in a position where all they are there to do is to support the soloist. Well, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Okay. In other words, let's go back to the hot dog conversation. If you're talking and your friend goes, Yeah, you know, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because there's this other place down on, on the other side of town, Joe's, on you know, Third Avenue, and they don't do the hot the Chicago thing, but their red hots are like spicy and they're amazing. Okay? Now he's just interjected something. The soloist still has the floor, but the soloist now goes, oh, Red Hots. Well, I got to tell you about this experience I had with Red Hots back at the ballpark at Fenway back in, you know, 97. And it was the most amazing hot dogs, but they made me sick to my stomach, or who knows what they might say. But the point is, the person who was comping just affected where the soloist went. Through their response they were able to guide the soloist. So it is incumbent on the soloist not simply to look at the other members of the band as their servant, who are simply there to make them look good. It is incumbent on them to listen to what those people are offering, the ideas they are offering. And this is when the magic happens in jazz, because it truly becomes like a really intense, amazing conversation where ideas are flying back and forth, and you're, you know, as the listener, listening to this incredible interaction. And in that case, it's a bunch of smart people who, what they are saying, in the case of a, a good jazz song, good jazz musicians, it's what you're listening to is a sophisticated conversation about something that's very interesting, uh, about something that has a an ebb and a flow to it, um, and really transports you somewhere, just like any other kind of good art can do. A beautiful painting, an amazing movie, uh, a great TV show, just watching the new Game of Thrones last night, you know, and uh, we're like screaming at the TV or The Walking Dead. I mean, it can really transport you. So that is the idea about sort of the soloist and those who are comping. Okay. Now, I want to give an example of a specific tune because I, and I use this with all my students. So if you're one of my students, you'll laugh right now uh, and then keep listening. So the tune is one of the most popular jazz songs in the world. It's called Freddy Freeloader, and it's on a record by Miles Davis called Kind of Blue. Kind of Blue. Now, this record, Kind of Blue, is probably the most famous jazz record. Uh, It's certainly, I think, the best-selling jazz album of all time. And therefore, I use it as an example because uh, most people have it or they've heard of it. Freddy Freeloader is the second song on Kind of Blue. And... um, It's a simple song. It doesn't have a complicated form. It's what we call a blues, a 12-bar blues. And everybody in the world has heard a 12-bar blues, you know, a typical... Stevie Ray Vaughan type of song, or Muddy Waters' song, uh, but everybody everybody uh, um, knows a blues. You know, you know, so it's the one, four, five blues progression. Anyway, when you listen to Freddy Freeloader, it will sound familiar to you, the movement of the chords, and the melody on Freddy Freeloader is very simple. What's amazing about Freddy Freeloader is the band, the band that Miles Davis assembled when making this record. And it's one of the reasons why this album is so popular, okay? Now, here's the great example of having, you know, a group of amazing conversationalists and accompanists together in one place because uh, what they create is is just incredible. So the song Freddie Freelitter, like I said, it's a simple song, and it's a very simple palette, a simple canvas upon which each of these artists can Lay their thing can can put down their ideas about the subject now Freddy freeloader um i don't really know what that's about there's a couple of, of uh, albums uh, uh, albums there's a couple of books out about the album kind of blue and maybe in the show notes I'll put a, a link to one of those um, where they interview the the guys who had been on the session uh, but it's an interesting title, and I think it 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 helps if we want to know what jazz is about and how to better play it that we Uh, we go out and find out a little more about what it might be about. So, hey, we got Wikipedia, we can wiki freddy freeloader and i'm not going to do it right now but i suggest that you go do it but you know i i think the the title refers to somebody who was hanging out on the jazz scene at that time who was maybe a freeloader uh, of some kind or another or maybe he was on the drug scene there's a lot of drugs going around and he was something to do with that i don't really know i don't really have the exact answer but if you go and find out these things um sometimes it helps to make the song clearer for example another example um the girl from ipanema right so it's a Girl from Ipanema, this is a famous bossa nova by uh, Stan Getz and uh, 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 Joao Gilberto. Uh, Astrid Gilberto, Joao Gilberto's wife, sings the songs. Uh, Stan Getz plays the saxophone. Joao Gilberto is the guitar player. The song is written by Jobim, the most famous Brazilian uh, bossa nova composer, right? And it's this cool bossa nova thing. Uh, and if you listen to the lyrics, it's about Ipanema Beach, the girl, a girl walking on Ipanema Beach. And of course, at the beginning, it sounds like, oh, well, great, it's about a beautiful girl on a beach, and I'm admiring her walk by. But then you get to the bridge of the song, and the bridge of the song uh, talks about how actually very sad and lonely the the gentleman is, or the voice of the person is who's, who's singing that song, uh, because this beautiful girl just walks past him every day, and he's just sitting there. She looks straight ahead, not at me, and that's the end of the bridge. So it's a bittersweet song. And now if you know and you're familiar with the lyrics, when you listen to the song, although it sounds sort of dreamy and that bossa nova thing going on, the bridge is sort of, you know, has this darker side to it. Aha! So the soloists, if they understand that, can put more into their solo. They can be thinking about that when they get to that section of the song. So learning the melody, learning the lyrics, if there are lyrics or understanding, doing a Wikipedia of the title, all of these things are going to help us to understand more about jazz. And if you're interested in jazz and learning to access it, like I said, a place I would recommend starting, get Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. And when you do, Wikipedia it. Check it out. Um, Learn about it. All right? Now, back to the idea of the conversation in Freddie Freeloader. Miles, uh, Miles Davis was legendary for assembling many different bands through his career of sort of disparate personalities, people that you wouldn't think would mesh very well. He was, he was great at finding young talent. I mean, so many people from, you know, 1949, when his first album, Birth of the Cool, came out, all the way until he died in the early 90s, he was fostering amazing talent. And uh, this particular era, he's got some unbelievable people. The most famous, probably, sideman on this, um, in addition to Miles, who's playing trumpet, of course, is John Coltrane. A lot of people have heard that name. Famous tenor sax player. There's also Cannonball Adderley on on alto sax, which is a a smaller uh, and a slightly higher-pitched saxophone than the tenor. And... um, and then on piano, you had a guy named Wynton Kelly, on bass was a guy named Paul Chambers, and on drums, a guy named Jimmy Cobb, who is still alive, still performing here in New York, and uh, is the last remaining member from this album, uh, uh, Kind of Blue, still still living. And I, I just to drop a, a, a note, I got to see Jimmy Cobb with his Kind of Blue project, actually perform the whole album. Uh, at uh, the Smoke Jazz Club here in New York a couple years ago, and it was amazing to see Jimmy, because I've taught this song and taught this album so much over the years. To actually see the man who played it live play it live was amazing. Blew my mind. was was a great moment. I may have a little video of that, too, and I might throw that up on the show notes page. Ha ha. So, good reason to go to the show notes page, guys. There's lots of cool stuff there. Anyway, uh, so... These these six gentlemen in the band, um, I believe it was a sextet, three horns, three rhythm, yes. So uh, you may not know anything about jazz, you may not know anything about this album, but every single one of these guys went on to become a legend on their instrument, absolute jazz legend. So when we get to the solos, the first guy to solo is Wynton Kelly, the piano player, and he lays down a solo that's very bluesy, It sounds like a B.B. King Type of a thing over this this blues chord progression and it's very rootsy sounds like something you'd hear a guy sitting on a back porch playing it's got a lot of those kind of characteristics so let's check out a second of Winton kelly's solo. so you hear kind of the bluesy nature of that. Now, next up is Miles Davis. Now, Miles's approach is very different than Wynton Kelly. And what he has to say on this song is, I like to call it like a Monet watercolor. He uses very few notes. There's lots of kind of echo and reverb on his tone. And a lot of the notes he plays are what you might even call wrong notes. They don't sound very musically pretty, but they are uh, very cool, and that was kind of Miles' trademark. He was really able to um, play, you uh, know, um, he was able to play, you know, wrong notes and make them sound right, and it gave him his personality. So, Different personalities. These two guys have said something different about this subject of Freddie Freeloader. Third up in the solo department is John Coltrane. Now, John Coltrane, if you don't know who he was, was a complete revolutionary on the instrument in every way, but he was known for being the most technically technically proficient master of the tenor saxophone, probably one of the, the greatest Tech tech, technicians on the instrument of all time, and the solo he lays down—I like to call him the mad scientist. So you go from the kind of the back back porch blues guy to the mad scientist, and he's playing stuff that's pretty out. And I mean, you can hardly recognize that it's a blues. It's hard to tap your foot to his solo, but that's where jazz was headed. He was a very—he was stretching the boundaries of what jazz could be, and he gets pretty avant-garde with it. But at the same time, the runs he's putting together—if you really listen to it it's unbelievable. And it was unlike anything that was out there, and it was very controversial for its time. People thought it was noise, you know, and a lot of people still think it's noise today, but it was saying something unique in his voice, okay? (laughs) Next up on the solo docket is Cannonball Adderley. And Cannonball Adderley, I like to call him the preacher, the Sunday morning gospel preacher. So if any of you are familiar with Ella Fitzgerald, every time she opened her mouth, she's a great legendary jazz singer, just joy would come out. Just pure joy, happiness, make me happy. Every time I hear Ella sing, it just is this ebulence uh, and this pure just happiness. Um, and that's what I always associate with Ella. Cannonball solo on Freddy Freeloader is a lot like that. You imagine this kind of big guy with this little horn, you know, he was a, his name was Cannonball because he was rotund, and he has this little alto, alto saxophone, so it's a big guy with a little horn, and he's just like, you know, a preacher on a Sunday morning. He's got a lot of chops, he's talking fast, but you feel the joy in what he's singing and through his horn you feel the joy of what he's saying he's he's lifting you up so you know and and after his solo they go back of course, at the end of the jazz, at most jazz songs, they play the head again. So they all wrap it up by singing the hot dog theme, the Freddy Freeloader theme, and then they go out. So as you listen to this song, Freddy Freeloader, I want you to listen to the interaction between the musicians. What is happening with the rhythm section, the guys who are doing the comping? So there are three horn players and a piano player who's solo. And obviously, when the piano player is soloing, the only ones that are comping are the rhythm section guys—the bass player and the drummer—what are they doing? How are they backing him up? How are they agreeing with him or going "uh-huh" or uh, "uh"? I see what you mean. Like, what is that interaction that's going on? And how is that all happening over this very simple melody of Freddie Freeloader? How does that change when Miles gets up and the Monet watercolor? Uh, approach happens. How does that change yet again when Coltrane steps up and there's a thousand notes a minute and it's very dense, you know, and he's, you could say if he's a conversationalist, he's using an incredibly heady vocabulary, you know, and then what about uh, Cannonball, the the preacher, you know, how are they responding to that? So, you, you know, I hope that I could sort of curate and guide you through this tune so you get some sense of what I listen to when I listen to jazz, you know, as someone who has played jazz and and listens to a lot of jazz. it is that it's an incredibly educational, pleasurable experience where I really start to hear what is happening, what that interaction is, and make my own assessments of it, right? I mean, the artists, don't always tell you what's going on. If you go see a, an abstract painting, you don't know if the painter was thinking about uh, a trees and a house and a lake and the sun, which you would get if you looked at a very realistic painting. So you have to put your own feelings onto that, and that's the benefit of avant-garde art: is that it's not such an easy experience for you, the um, the patron, to understand what. What's being said you've got to kind of think a little bit on your own and that's one of the things I also enjoy about jazz is that uh, it gets me to think I'm not it's not just hitting me over the head you know with a with a chorus uh, of you know pop lyrics that just repeat over and over and over and over again now some people like that and I like that sometimes but other times I want music to be something that I sort of that asks me to participate a little bit more now let's talk about different eras of jazz, because I think, um, you know, the role of history is very important here. Jazz has been around for a long time, okay? It's been around for longer than a 100 years. You know, jazz was happening in the 19-teens, really a 100 years ago, and even earlier. It was first recorded in 1917, but that's only because It finally got to a place where somebody decided to record it and call it jazz. Uh, Recording technology was not very good in 1917, so the first, quote-unquote, recorded jazz uh, record, the band, which was called the Original Dixieland Jazz Band, and by the way, they had jazz in their name, so suddenly it was like, okay, you guys play jazz, even though people had been playing the music, now suddenly people were putting it in the title of their name. Smart. Smart. You know, but they brought them up from New Orleans and they recorded in a studio in New York. And there probably weren't any studios in New Orleans that they could record at at that time. So anyway, in 1917, you have the first record that's called jazz. In 1920s, jazz is called the Jazz Age because uh, jazz spreads out of New Orleans uh, and sweeps the nation. Um, And in the 1930s, and I'm generalizing here very much, but in the 1930s up till the end of World War II, jazz continues to evolve, and now it's you know, goes from being an underground kind of music, which it was in the 20s because it was associated with prohibition and gangsters and illegal drinking and and speakeasies and that kind of stuff. But that's what allowed it to be heard by many people. And of course, radio evolves. uh, So now people start to hear it broadcast over the radio, Duke Ellington from the Cotton Club and many other folks as technology improves the ability to get the, the the sound of jazz out there increases. And then you go uh into the 30s and as the depression is happening uh and we lead up to World War II, jazz the sort of uh the the, the biggest vehicle for that jazz for jazz at this point is that it is um it is, it is uh, the big band era, is what we call the big band era, where now, you know, large groups, 17-piece bands, and larger, uh, and some smaller, um, are, are the ones that are bringing the word of jazz to popular culture. Now, the reason I mention all this, and it is a very, very basic history, uh, but is that Prior to 1945, jazz music was not considered avant garde music. It was not considered something that you would sit down and listen to in a concert hall. Uh, In fact, it was something more akin to, uh, say, underground hip hop when it started. It was a style that was mostly started in the black community, although white people certainly played it as well. Um, And, you know, that's a whole nother conversation the black white part of jazz. But it Certainly jazz and the feel of jazz comes from uh, a combination of European sort of structures, meaning European notes, European uh, song forms, European instruments, uh, and African-American interpretation. Because obviously when Africans were brought here as slaves uh, and were not able to participate in society, they they were not able to, when they were brought, all of their... um, Everything that they had, their culture, their language, their music, their instruments were stripped away from them, and they were forced to take on European instruments and culture and language and music and and all of that. But by the time you get to the 1890s, African Americans are participating more, and uh, their contribution to these European structures starts to be felt in the form of ragtime and then jazz. So, again, very brief... Uh, history there. But the point is, when jazz music was initially created, it was dance music. It was not intended to be something that you um, uh, sit down and appreciate. That was classical music. Um, It was dance music. It was pop music. It was something like, like I said, hip-hop or punk rock at the beginning, where young people were into it, and it was not approved of by the general public in any way, shape, or form. It was black music, and therefore it was, you know, something that was, was not uh, acceptable to upstanding citizens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it took a while for jazz to become accepted, and then to finally become a part of the culture. So, um, what, you know, when people hear the term jazz and they automatically assume it is music that they cannot access, they are only thinking of jazz in its modern context. So how did it get to that? Well, after World War II, there was sort of a a split. Uh, If you think about that the big bands and the jazz they played was both pop music and jazz music, meaning it was danceable and there, there, there were elements of improvisation with it. Um, those two aspects broke into pieces. And, um, you know, bebop was birthed by African American musicians in Harlem, and there were uh, practical reasons for that. Practical being that they were tired of just using jazz for the purposes of commercial purposes to um, play for dancers. They wanted to really break out and take the whole improvisational aspect of it and the harmonic aspect uh, and the soloing aspect to new places. Um, there was also a racial component to bebop which said, you know, that African Americans had not benefited properly up to that point from the music that they had created, participated in very greatly and due to the segregated, racist nature of the United States. You know, this is still the mid-40s. Our country was very segregated, very racist, and the band the white groups that had played jazz whether you know you want to fight about who invented it the white groups participated uh, had had benefited from uh, the 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 uh, popularity of jazz the rise in popularity more than the black groups had in general they were able to have better opportunities to record better opportunities to tour you know black groups couldn't go to the south uh, or it was very dangerous for them to go play down there the famous story about Duke Ellington with, um, he, you know, would rent out a couple of Pullman Porter cars and have an engine uh, just t- 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 take them to, down when he would go to the South, and the band would get out of the cars, they lived in the cars, they dined in the cars, they would get out, go to their show, do their show, where they probably had to come in through the service entrance, you know, and get back on the train and go to the next town. So they didn't have to deal with hotels or restaurants or any of the segregated racist stuff that um, a lot of other musicians had to when they traveled in the South. So, BeBop was a an attempt to establish something that could not be co opted, uh, and also that no longer needed to rely on uh, a dance beat. Okay, now that that turned into BeBop turned into what we call straight ahead jazz. It became much more of an art form. It definitely codified jazz as an American art form, similar to classical music. But what that led to is people stopped dancing to it, and the musicians stopped. Trying to make it an entertaining and danceable show. Um, That's fine because it took it into some really cool artistic directions that you wouldn't have been able to go if you were still focused on having a dance beat. But at the same time, you lost a lot of people because a lot of people um, just uh, could not access the music, thought it was noise. There was, you know, in the 1940s, there was a lot of debates, uh, a lot of Kind of verbal fights between you know in the pages of Downbeat and Metronome magazine about what was bebop and was bebop actually real music was it uh, you know it was called the new music was that was it noise was it taking jazz in a new direction could people hang with it a lot of the older musicians didn't want anything to do with it a lot of the older fans didn't understand why they you know why their music had deserted them as a dance music etc cetera, etc cetera. so when we think of jazz today what we think of as jazz, is the jazz that has come out of this tradition that was started by bebop. And of course, the other piece of that puzzle is what's called rhythm and blues, which I've talked about a little bit on the podcast, where it was still the same configuration as a big band, just a smaller version of that. But the music that they played was uh, much more had a danceable beat called a shuffle. The song stayed in a more of a blues configuration, a simpler progression, simpler melodies and it was a sim, It was still a pop music idea meant for the masses that you could dance to, and that tradition evolved into rock and roll and soul and funk and uh, every all, all of the kinds of pop music that we have today in general so um, it, it's it 's interesting, and I just I bring up all this history because I want listeners who maybe don't understand jazz to understand that if you want to access jazz go back find some earlier sounding music maybe from the 1940s some of that big band stuff you'll be able to understand it more in the context as you would of pop music today Uh, or go to some of the albums from the 1950s like kind of blue like a Thelonious Monk um A Thelonious Monk uh, compilation record, where there are melodies that more easily fit into your concept of what a a song you might listen to would be about. So if that makes sense, I I hope that makes sense. And of course, there are lots of uh, video DVD-type compilations out there. There's the Ken Burns series, of course. I have a DVD called From Ragtime to Rock, which looks at 100 years of the evolution of American popular music. And uh, these sort of organize the most important artists of every era. Uh, so that would be another great resource for you, or these would be great resources if you're interested in some of these eras to figure out where should where do I start? Who do I start with? Uh, now, um, I, I want to address one more thing, and that is um, sort of the role of of The jazz musician, okay, uh, and this now this part maybe goes out to musicians, but I think if you 're into music you 'll appreciate what i 'm about to say. Um, the role of the jazz musician is often understood misunderstood, I should say, in the way that it 's taught and what the expectation is for the student. You know these days, most people learn jazz not just by getting together in the garage with a bunch of guys and playing their favorite songs, like you maybe would rock and roll. Uh, jazz is, has, has sort of been marginalized now. You don't hear jazz everywhere. You don't learn jazz in school very much. Uh, so if you're interested in jazz, somehow you got into it, and then generally you go study it with somebody. So you go to a private teacher, and then maybe you go to school, uh, you go to college for it, or you study it in some way. Now, when it is taught in a school setting, what happens is that the studies become very focused on the technical aspects of jazz. And that only makes sense because so much of jazz has been about, of of the last 40 years, has been about pushing the boundaries, technically speaking. So, you know, it's about trying to sound more like John Coltrane and what his solo was like in Freddy Freeloader than it is trying to sound like Wynton Kelly and what his solo was like, which was a blues type of a solo. And you certainly learn about blues when you're studying jazz. But what ends up happening is you end up practicing a lot of technical stuff. So if you're, you know, and and the reason you do that is so that you can become a really good soloist. And, you know, so if you're a sax player, you're going to practice different scales, different chords, uh, you're going to learn about different chord progressions, you're going to pr- practice variations and all that. Um, and you're going to, you know, there are a lot of variations. It's, a, it's an enormous kind of, I mean, the great thing about jazz when you're learning it is you realize that you could spend the rest of your life studying jazz and you would never, quote unquote, get there. You know, that it's, it's, it's an endless source of, of study, which I think any good thing in this world should be. You shouldn't ever be able to just sort of get to the end of what you're studying. We should all theoretically be students for life, pursue what we are interested in. But, um, you know, the issue is that uh, the the focus on technique becomes much too heavily stressed, and the focus on the music and the role of the musician in the music and that idea of a conversation is not stressed enough. Now, I know a lot of drummers listen to this podcast— how this relates with drummers is we end up worrying about what the four limbs do, right? So, you know, we've got a bass drum, a snare drum, a hi-hat with our foot, and a ride cymbal. Each limb is doing something different, and generally we get sort of a repetitive pattern going on the ride cymbal, which goes ding, ding, da-ding, ding, da-ding, ding, da-ding, and against that we put hi-hat on two and four, ding, check, da-ding, check, da-ding. And then we do diff- different things with our bass drum and our snare drum, and we play a lot of different melodic ideas that are supposed to be the things that we do when we comp, that accentuate the melody of the song. But the problem is we don't learn the songs, we just look at pages and pages of exercises, getting our arms and legs to do coordinated things, stuff in a coordinated fashion. We call that in the world of drumming limb independence. And the problem with that is that when we get up on the bandstand to play with other musicians and play jazz, we're not we don't even care what the melody of the song is and we don't care what you know the the song is about and we don't We're not paying any attention to what the other musicians are supposed to be paying attention to. We are only obsessed with, all right, now I'm going to play that cool, you know, thing with my arms and legs, and now I'm going to do this cool thing, and man, yeah, I just practiced this all day today, so I'm going to throw that in for good measure. And what ends up happening is we end up living in another world from the rest of the band. We are doing essentially math problems, and everybody else is trying to play that song. They're trying to have that conversation. So it would be like if everyone's having a conversation about hot dogs, and you're in the the middle of that conversation and you're, you know, reciting the square root of pi while everyone else is trying to talk about hot dogs. I mean, everyone would tell you, get the hell out of here. You know, either talk about what we want to talk about or get the hell out. So this is a, a huge problem, especially for drummers. Now, this problem can also come up for other kinds of instrumentalists who are working on their soloing chops all the time because again they are not paying attention to the melody of the song they 're thinking about oh, okay here 's that cool you know figure that I can throw in there here 's that altered fifth you know thing, and you know they 're thinking about what they did in the practice room and they 're also not addressing the song and they simply think that they could take chorus after chorus after chorus and that they 're going to say something interesting by throwing out essentially what are exercises so To me, what I'm going to do in this jazz intensive is I'm going to approach things from several different angles, and we're going to start with just the idea of pulse, this idea of four quarter notes to the beat. If we take that jazz ride pattern, ding, ding, da-ding, ding, ding, da-ding, we can break that down to just four quarter notes, ding, 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 ding. And I have a whole... Um, if you guys know about Drumeo, I just recently started teaching as a satellite instructor on Drumeo, and uh, you can go to, is a free um, seminar I did on Drumeo called The Evolution of Timekeeping. If you just go to YouTube and punch in Daniel Glass, uh, uh, Drumeo. Uh, the edge of the uh, evolution of timekeeping you 'll find it it's about an hour long, and I do a bunch of playing. but I talk about this idea in the history of pulse and why it's so important for drummers to understand that before they start adding in anything else and this This goes back to the idea that that music is dance music, and if we're not making people dance as drummers, then everything that we add on top of that is relatively meaningless in other words if if you can really swing quarter notes on a ride cymbal, you know, you could go sit in at a jam session with a bunch of jazz guys and they'd be very happy with you and they'd say, hey man, come back next week. On the other hand, if you went in and tried to do all this between your hands and feet and play all this complicated stuff, but there was no element of swing there, there was no four quarter notes driving forward, then they're going to say, thank you, next. And you'll wonder why you spent all that time practicing when you know, when they just kicked you off the bandstand. So drummers, and this is for you drummers, having a bunch of of stuff going on with your hands and feet, coordination exercises out of books, does not make you a jazz drummer. Sorry, it makes you somebody who can play a lot of exercises out of books. Similarly, you sax players, if you can play a lot of altered runs on your horn... That, you don't get any bonus prize for that. That doesn't automatically mean you graduate to being a good jazz musician or that anybody is going to want to play jazz with you, or you're going to say anything when you play jazz. you know. Instead, you're going to be part of the problem, which is, and not just sax players, but all all jazz musicians are going to be part of the problem, which is that they are not connecting with the people who are trying to find a song in there. If you are not playing the song, then you're not making jazz. You're not playing jazz. So, uh, to go back to what, how we're going to approach us at, at the Jazz Intensive, we're going to talk about technique for sure, and we're going to start with that quarter note pulse by itself, establish some, some concepts there. We're going to talk about uh, history and evolution, and each day we're going to spend an hour going through an era of jazz. So I'm basically just going to go up through the bebop era, because in four days I could sort of outline the history, but it's important to know the history when you're approaching songs. For example, you know, there's a big repertoire, and that's another element we're going to talk about is repertoire. So, you know, if you don't know jazz songs, how are you supposed to be able to play jazz? If you don't know the repertoire, and if you don't know, for example, what era the song comes from or the way that your fellow musicians want to approach that song, then again, you're at a disadvantage. So, I spent, I, uh, there was a, uh, our producer with Royal Crown Review, when we were on Warner Brothers Records, we did two records with the legendary producer Ted Templeman. And Ted talked about, uh, you know, Ted, Ted, Ted Templeman is one of the most famous producers of the basically the 70s and the 80s. He produced the first five Van Halen records, all the classic Doobie Brothers, many of the classic Little Feet records, a lot of the classic Van Halen uh, um Van Morrison stuff, uh, I mean, legendary Warner Brothers producer, and we were amazingly lucky he signed us to Warner Brothers, and one of the greatest pieces of advice that he gave me, I said, hey man, someday I want to produce records, and I want to do sessions and be a session drummer. He said, learn songs, learn repertoire, learn repertoire, you know, so... That's an, you know, we wouldn't ever worry about this when we were when we play rock and roll, for example. So, say that you're a working musician and you want to be in a classic rock band, well, you need to know the classic rock repertoire. So, when they call you know this journey tune and that uh, Tom Petty song and that Billy Joel tune, you're familiar with it. You, you wouldn't go in and want to play classic rock if you didn't know anything about classic rock. Well, that's unfortunately the way a lot of jazz musicians are. They know very little about the catalog with which they claim to be playing. So that is, um, you know, that's a big, big problem. And it's a big problem and reason why so much of jazz is misunderstood today, is that not only the listener misunderstands, How they should be listening to jazz, or what they should be listening for, but the musician often does not understand what their job is, how to fulfill the historical uh, uh, journey of their predecessors. You know, do you got to do the same thing that the people before you did? Otherwise, how are you gonna, you know, be able to find your own voice? And people say, well, you know, I don't want to listen to that old stuff because I'm a modern person and I want to have my own modern voice. Well, you know. Think of your hero. So your hero is John Coltrane. He first learned how to play like his predecessors. The only way he could deviate from his predecessors was knowing how to play like them. Otherwise, how does he know what he is deviating from, right? So, you know, it's what kills me about you know, a very famous music school. I had a guy who had gone, I will, this school will remain un, nameless, but one of the most fa- famous music schools in the world. And and this guy said to me, yeah, when I went to this school, they told me I was not allowed to play a, what we call a four on the floor on my bass drum, which is four beats to the bar. I was not allowed to do that because, um, because that wasn't jazz, you know? It, and that's just wrong on every level. And Part of what makes me mad about the people teaching jazz these days, and again, this is a very blanket generalization, I'm sure not everybody's like this, but most, many professors of jazz never played jazz, were never professional jazz musicians, because jazz is hard to find these days, there's not a lot of jazz gigs, so if you went and got your PhD in jazz studies or jazz performance, well, now the next thing you're looking at is a job teaching exactly about what you just learned. And it frustrates me because I'm sort of much more of a street guy. I came up, like a lot of the old school jazz musicians, by learning it on the job. Yes, I practiced a lot. Yes, I listened a lot. But I learned on the job in practical situations where my income depended on was I going to make people dance, quote unquote? I mean, not maybe not literally all the time, but certainly, and if you watch my Century Project DVD, you know about my definition of making people dance, which is getting a group of people to move from point A to point B through my rhythm making. You know, making them so excited about what I'm doing that they take whatever the journey is with me, right? So, you know, I mean, I understand what you need to do to successfully get a crowd going, I think I've learned, worked with a lot of vocalists, so I know how to work with a vocalist. I've worked in a lot of different kinds of, um, you know, I play 1920s jazz, I play big band jazz, traditional stuff, I play bebop, I play more modern stuff, I play shuffles, I play blues. I've, I've been doing it for a long time, so certainly experience is a part of it, but... It makes me crazy when I hear that some professor at some high-level music school telling his students that they shouldn't play four beats to the bar because that's not jazz. That was jazz up until the time of bebop. And even if you look at great bebop players of yesteryear and today, most of them are playing some kind of light four, even if it's almost like they're just pressing that beater ball onto the head without actually making a sound. That's happening. That's in their playing. It has to be. That four on the floor in your ride cymbal pattern, in your hi-hat, in your bass drum. It's got to be there. Otherwise, you're not swinging. That's just all there is to it. And guess what? A lot of people that come out of music schools today don't swing. They don't know how to swing. They don't know what swing even is. They don't understand where it comes from because there's been this break. And so, anyway, this is, you know, I could go on about this for another hour, I've been talking for about an hour now, and um, I think I've I've said a lot. But this is why I want to put on a jazz intensive because I believe that you know jazz can be saved. We can keep calm and learn to love jazz, both as listeners and as musicians, and that it's not that difficult. And that if we can find a way in, if we can find the way to access that melody, find a way to understand what that soloist is saying, to access that conversation, um, you know, we can learn to appreciate and love jazz. And those of us who play jazz can be more effective at doing that and bring more people out to the jazz gigs because they came and they said, man, those guys really spoke to me. They said something to me. It didn't just sound like a bunch of guys, you know, pardon my French, jerking off, which how many people, that's how they would describe jazz to you, non-jazz lovers. Right? So hopefully I've made a strong case for this. Again, I would like to uh, point out that the Daniel Glass. New York Jazz Intensive. The 2016 New York Jazz Intensive will be happening June 3rd through the 6th at the Collective School of Music here in New York City. I encourage you to go to my website and go to the uh, uh, clinic slash intensives tab. There's a tab for it. There's a video in there where I'm walking around the Collective. There's another one where I'm at Birdland. Uh, We're going to go all over New York and have a great experience. So I hope you can join us. And if you're listening to this after June 3rd through 6th, I apologize. Uh, But hey, that's part of a podcast is to let people know what I got cooking so thanks a lot guys have a wonderful day and i hope to see you in new york and let's get swinging together right on thanks so much for listening to the daniel glass podcast if you like what you heard Please make sure to follow me on Facebook at Daniel Glass, drummer, author, educator. And please make sure to jump over to iTunes and give us a rating on this podcast. Whether you liked it, whether you hated it, one star, or five stars, every rating truly helps. those funny people smile. How can there be